Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. The wind was the primal force. The sand blew in blinding fury across the plains, or lay in mocking waves that never broke on any, howsoever, distant beach, or piled in mounds with fickle gust removed almost as soon as they were erected, when, for endless miles, there seemed nothing but wind and sand and empty, far-off sky. I'm Robert Darden, your host for Treasures of the Texas Collection. And those words blow our way from the pages of the wind, the debut novel of Dorothy Scarborough, native of Texas and Waco in particular, a Baylor graduate and later faculty member who went on during the early 1900s to become one of America's most acclaimed female novelists. Here to shine a light on some of her most interesting attributes is Mark Andrew Olson, author of Christian thrillers like The Assignment and The Watchers and co-string writer of the MGM film Music Within. Mark, thank you for talking with us today about the life and letters of this most remarkable woman who I've admired for a long time. Now, one of the first things one hears about Dorothy Scarborough is that she came from a distinguished and accomplished Waco family, right? I would call that a fair assessment of the Waco Scarboroughs. Dorothy was the youngest of three children born to John and Mary Scarborough in 1873 in Mont Carmel. John Scarborough grew up on a large family plantation with many slaves in Jackson Parish, Louisiana. He was a Civil War veteran, twice wounded in the Red River Campaign in uh, 1864. The family moved early on to Sweetwater because of Mrs. Scarborough's need for a drier climate. There, Mr. Scarborough practiced law and soon became a judge. During his term of office, he was credited with breaking up a band of outlaws who were terrorizing that sparsely settled region. Goodness. I guess this was when Dorothy became uh, acquainted with the dry and windy climate of West Texas. Actually, it is. Without jumping too far ahead of ourselves, Mrs. Scarborough did become rather infamous for a time, at least in West Texas, for her depiction of the wind in her novel of the same name, which was turned into one of the last great silent films of the same name, starring Lillian Gish. And in one of her many defenses of the novel, Scarborough said, quote, I have been accused of disliking West Texas, but that's a mistake. It's a great section, and I love it. I used to live in West Texas when I was about as big as a ground squirrel <laughs> and not of an age to be taking notes for novels. But I went back for frequent visits in my early childhood and girlhood, and so I knew northers and sandstorms and droughts. But the wind has its real origin and the impressions I got from hearing my mother's vivid accounts of her struggles with the climate of the West. She loved the people out there, but she did not care for the weather. My father had taken her there to that high, dry climate because her lungs were weak. Well, she found the climate dry enough. I bet she did. Eventually, though, the Scarborough family moves to Waco, right? Yes. In fact, the old Scarborough home was at uh, 717 Spade Avenue and was used for a while by Baylor as a, quote, cooperative house for girls before Memorial Hall was built on the property. They became members of First Baptist Waco during the time when H.B. Carroll was pastor. John Scarborough became a trustee of Baylor in uh, 1888. 
and a member of the state board of the Baptist General Convention of Texas in 1887. He and his wife were buried in Oakwood Cemetery in Waco. So did uh, Dorothy have any siblings? Actually, Dorothy was the youngest of three very interesting children. The oldest child, Ellison Bledsoe, died in infancy in 1872. Um, Martha Douglas Scarborough wrote a nonfiction book titled Love Looks at Death. She studied at Baylor from 1887 to 94, receiving her bachelor's and master's degrees. She later took a bachelor from Vassar, uh, Vassar College and became a teacher of modern language at Baylor. In 1898, she married a pastor, George W. McDaniel, who became one of the leading Baptist ministers of the South, including pastoring the First Baptist Church of Richmond, Virginia for 20 years and being elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Goodness. George Scarborough, born in 1876, graduated from Baylor in 1896, but also from University of Texas Law School. He was not interested in law, however, and in 1906, went to New York, where he did some unsuccessful lecturing and later tried his hand at journalistic work. For a while, he worked at the Department of Justice, where he earned a reputation for fearlessness and courage. Without any internal support, George cleaned up some of the worst gambling rings in New York City and soon became a legend of terror to gangsters. (laughs) He was a dead shot and was known for displaying great moral and physical courage. His real interest, however, lay in writing drama. And in 18, or 1912, his first play, The Lure, was produced. It was a sensational success, and he followed it with a number of successful plays on Broadway with um, such celebrated producers as Harris, Schubert, and Belasco. Over a dozen of his plays reached Broadway between 1913 and 1920. He then became interested in movies and turned his attention to screenwriting, although no film credits are attributed to him. Emily Dorothy Scarborough, the subject of this story, was born January 27, 1878, and she was the youngest of those three. Sounds like we could have done a pretty good show on George. So what do we know about Dorothy as a kid? Anything? Well, as a child, she was very small with gray-green eyes and rather auburn hair. And due to her small stature, she was called Dottie by her friends and later Miss Dottie by her students. (laughs) She had a stimulating personality and a a warm, generous nature. Dottie grew up literally on the Baylor campus. Students and faculty alike were used to seeing her as a child sitting up in the trees reading a book. Sitting in a perch reading a book seems to be a theme. There was a large, old-fashioned barn at the Scarborough farm with a a loft filled with hay and cottonseed hulls. Dorothy was apparently fond of going there and taking along a book. One day, her mother found a book there and told a neighbor about it in terms of distress, sure that there had been a tramp up there. (laughs) The house also had a large tree into which she would often climb into to read. Well, as Baylor fans know, she eventually found her way to the school where her father served as a trustee for many years. That's right. Dorothy graduated from Baylor with a BA in 1896 and her MA in 1899. As a Baylor co-ed, She focused her whole social and academic life on her love of literature. She contributed poems, essays, sketches, and short stories to various student publications. As her writing matured, she began to win literary prizes on campus. She was especially excited about her her participation in the Calliopean Literary Society, 
there's a handful, a <laughs> mouthful, where one of her jobs was to correspond with famous authors to request greetings and copies of their works. After graduating, she taught in public schools for several years in uh, nearby Marlin, Texas. Mm-hmm. In the fall of 1904, she returned to Baylor as an instructor of English, a position she held until 1916 when she was made assistant professor. Pretty neat for a woman in those days. So, do we know when Scarborough was first published? While at Baylor, her first book, Fugitive Verses, a collection of her poetry, was published. Its chapters included themes and place names familiar to residents of Central Texas, like drought in Texas, yeah. uh, in a field of buffalo clover, and spring in Cameron Park. As a, regu- a regular faculty member at Baylor from 1905 to 1915, she also taught general literature courses, composition, creative writing, and journalism. She also taught a popular and influential college men's Sunday school class at the First Baptist Church in Waco. Well, that's interesting. So when did Dorothy first display her passion for local folklore? It, it was then, right? Yeah, it was, during her Baylor days. Even though the study of folklore in Texas was in its infancy when Scarborough was teaching at Baylor, she soon became enamored with the subject. Apparently, there was an African-American church not far from the Scarborough home, and on still summer evenings during her childhood, little Dottie was known to sit and listen to the singing drift outside. Also on summer Sundays, the the baptizings, quote-unquote, were held in uh, Waco Creek, and she was known to frequent those as well. A small wonder, then, that she became an early member of the Texas Folklore Society, which was founded in 1910, and served as president of the society in 1914 to 15. Wow. As reflected in her publications, her interests as a folklorist were generally in folk songs, cowboys, and the lore of the Negro. In addition to various essays and articles, she published two major folklore collections, On the Trail of Negro Folk Songs in 1925 and A Song Catcher in the Southern Mountains, published in, uh, in 1937 posthumously. Okay, well then let's move on to our days following her departure from Baylor and Waco. Unfortunately for the city, Miss Dorothy was not one to be kept in Waco very long. Although she was immense, immensely popular with her students, she soon grew bored of the drudgery of correcting student compositions. She longed for more time to devote to her own writing. During vacations from Baylor, she started doing graduate work at the University of Chicago, and there she turned to creative writing, notably short story courses, working towards um, acquiring a Ph.D. In 1910, she and three other Baylor faculty women toured Europe, and Scarborough stayed on with a year's leave of absence to study at Oxford University in England. She learned when she arrived that the university did not grant degrees to women, but The discovery did not stop her. She continued her studies undeterred. After her mother's death in 1915, Dorothy leased out the family home and moved to New York City, where her brother was already a successful playwright, in order to to study literature at Columbia University. She never lived in Texas again. Expecting to be absent only a year, she soon learned the work would take two years, and while a student there, she was asked to become an instructor in the short story. Wow. Calling it a subject she could teach, quote, with one hand tied behind <laughs> her, she promptly accepted after having had such uh, splendid success at Baylor. Her progress at Columbia was marked by her promotion to lecturer in 1919 
to assistant professor in 1923 and to associate professor in 1931. And her teaching emphasis was creative writing, especially the techniques of the short story in the novel. So I suppose it was during this period that Dorothy established what most consider her second major field of expertise, and a lot of us would be glad to have just one. That is ghost stories and the supernatural. That's a wide range. Yes, it, it is. And uh, it was, in fact, while receiving her Ph.D. from Columbia that she wrote a dissertation entitled The Supernatural in Modern English Fiction, which was so widely acclaimed by her peers that it was quickly published and uh, has become a basic reference in the field, even after all these years. In it, Scarborough established the Gothic romance and certain European writings as primary influences on the use of the supernatural in modern literature. She organized the supernatural by categories, modern ghosts, the devil, folk tales, and supernatural science. Hmm. She even concluded that World War I was the cause for the contemporary interest in the supernatural and that American writers were primarily to credit for combining the supernatural with humor. Despite this, uh, shall we say, deviation into the spirit world, she, she continued her forays into folklore, right? She, she certainly did. In 1920, Scarborough was living in Morningside Heights on the fringe of Harlem when the first blues recording by an African-American singer, uh, Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, was released. It was a huge commercial success, even though it was marketed exclusively in the African-American neighborhoods. But Scarborough almost certainly knew of this success because as this song and other race records began to be a force to be reckoned with on the cultural scene, she started a project to collect what she described as, as, quote, genuine Negro melodies. She took a few sabbaticals from Columbia and traveled throughout the South to collect these songs. With the help of uh, the famous folklorist George Kittredge of Harvard, she crafted these into her first serious collection, which was published as on the trail of Negro folk songs in 1925 and immediately established her through the academic world as an expert on the subject. I've used that book myself. It's fascinating. So 1925 was a bellwether year for Scarborough. Yes, it was. Actually, many of her biographies describe that year as the high point of her life. Her novel, The Wind, was published that year to great success along with a semi-autobiographical novel called The Unfair Sex. So let's talk about The Wind, Uh, perhaps her greatest success, especially since it was adapted to that famous silent film. The Wind, interestingly enough, was published anonymously, but not because she was trying to avoid personal abuse (laughs) brought on by the novel's descriptions and the controversies, but because her publisher, Harper & Brothers, suggested bringing it out anonymously as a publicity stunt. A recent novel, West of the Water Tower, had been brought over this way, and the discussion over who the author was had greatly helped the author's sales. However, Scarborough concluded that the publicity for the wind was inexcusably bungled, with the result that the novel never did meet her expectations. In the novel, the wind, the vastness of West Texas and the cruelty of some of its inhabitants, begin to immediately wear on the heroine who has just moved to Sweetwater. The wind keeps garden flowers from growing. The wind isolates people. The wind provokes haunting feelings of immortality. And finally, the wind drives the heroine to insanity, sending her running across the prairies, supposedly to collapse and die a lunatic's death. Hmm. Scarborough describes Sweetwater as, quote, a struggling collection of small houses of the rudest, simplest structure, 
some not even painted, some without fences, just little bare box houses, naked and unbeautiful, set down in a waste of sand. <laughs> My goodness. I suppose that didn't go over particularly well with the West Texas Chamber of Commerce. It certainly didn't. Uh, members of the, com- of the Chamber of Commerce immediately accused this unidentified Yankee writer of maligning Sweetwater and deliberately exaggerating the dry climate of the region. In fact, angered locals even gathered in front of the Nolan County Courthouse to burn copies of the book. After her identity was revealed soon afterwards, Scarborough explained that although she was a loyal Texan, she was also a novelist, not committed to be a booster for the climate of West <laughs> Texas. <laughs> As she summarized once, she had, she had been, quote, convicted of realism in the first degree. <laughs> the chamber and its most vocal champion, uh, Judge Crane, demanded that she satisfy their version of historical accuracy in order to be a true novel of the West. <laughs> and enjoying a good fight, she, she responded, quote, Has the West Texas wind got on your nerves, Mr. Crane, and the sand blinded you to the difference between a novel and an historical treatise? You complain that you can't find any old-timers near Sweetwater that recall the plot of my recent novel, The Wind, and you haven't dug up the murdered man's body from any sand drift there. Hence the book is fiction. Why, bless your historical heart, that's all it was ever meant to be. If storytellers weren't allowed to invent characters and situations, fiction would be even duller than it is. A novelist writes impressionistically, and fiction need only conform to the essential truth of time and place. Oh, great quote. So, was there any lasting animosity between Dorothy and those stalwart champions of West Texas? No, it, it doesn't seem that way. She later wrote about her exchanges with Crane, quote, We Texans understand each other. What may seem like violence to an ignorant Easterner, I recognize as only friendly enthusiasm. As a matter of fact, at the height of her book's success, she was invited to Sweetwater to speak. In a classic bit of irony, Scarborough arrived during one of the most vicious <laughs> sandstorms the region had experienced in years. And when she accepted Crane's invitation to tour the countryside, they were caught in a blue norther so severe that they had trouble even making it back to town. If Scarborough hadn't already won her battle with the judge, she did so when she presented him a signed copy of The Wind. Needless to say, the visit was a triumph for Scarborough. A oh, great story. I take it this brings us to the last decade or so of Dorothy's life. Yes, and they were productive and, and satisfying years for her. Scarborough continued to write even as she reveled in the life of an acclaimed author and folklorist. She was a sought-after speaker, book reviewer, and, of course, continued her career at Columbia where she influenced authors like Eric Walrond and Carson McCullers. She divided her time between a farm in rural Connecticut and an apartment in New York City. And it was there that she died on November 7, 1935. Do we know what kind of recognition she received? One newspaper said, The impression which the late Dr. Dorothy Scarborough, professor of English in Columbia University since 1917, left upon Waco and Texas friends, was demonstrated at her funeral in Waco Hall Monday afternoon, when many scores of them journeyed through some of the most disagreeable weather of the season, to pay tribute to her memory. President Pat Neff presided. The Baylor flag was dipped in sorrow. Dr. J.M. Dawson, pastor of the First Baptist Church where Miss Garborough had taught while a Waco resident, declared that the author and teacher was herself one of God's noblest poems. 
Dr. Lee Scarborough, a cousin who lived in the Scarborough home while a student at Baylor, told of testimonies he had received from Baylor men out over the state of the spiritual blessings they enjoyed through their membership in the college men's class that she had taught in the First Baptist Church Sunday School. This lovely. Mark, can you leave us with one more memorable bit of Dorothy Scarborough's writing, please? Uh, gladly, I'll attempt to do it justice. Quote, What if one be messageless? What matters then? The facile pen, the words, like birds, that wing their easy flight into the vaporous nothingness of blue? If, from that heavenward height, there fall not to the one whose eager view quick scans the sky, a faint yet high, remote yet rapturous note. Rapturous note indeed, Mark. You know, during Dorothy's life in Waco, before she left for New York, when someone somewhere would mention Waco, they'd immediately think of not Baylor University, or even the suspension bridge, but water. Yep. For a couple of decades before the turn of the 20th century, Waco was known for its massive artesian wells, where hot mineral water gushed out in what seemed to be, anyway, an endless supply. So much so, in fact, Waco's nickname for a time was Geyser City. Anyway, the first big artesian well was dug in what is known as the Bells Hill section of Waco, overlooking downtown. At 1,830 feet down, workmen hit a gusher. That was March 10, 1889, and the water, a steaming 103 degrees, shot dozens of feet in the air. Many, many more wells followed in short order. One particularly massive well initially averaged 1.5 million gallons a day. Another needed a 90-foot vertical pipe just to handle the overflow. This was pretty good timing for the good folks in Waco because in the late 1890s, America was gaga over mineral baths and tonic waters. The self-proclaimed experts of the day declared that taking the baths and drinking the water was the ticket to all kinds of amazing health benefits, including making people live longer. Really. Not bad for water that tasted like hot Alka-Seltzer. Cities like Hot Springs, Arkansas sprang up around a collection of springs there and brought the whole town a whole lot of fame and publicity, and not coincidentally, money. And the civic-minded leaders of Waco at the time paid very close attention. The Texas Collection has a copy of the Geyser City Record from 1890, an enthusiastic journal promoting all things Waco back then, but especially its artesian wells. The pictures are pretty neat. And one article quotes a number of well-known doctors who swear that Waco's water is every bit the equal of Hot Springs, Arkansas's better-known water. So there. Also in the Texas Collection is an article published in 1893 by a big-shot Chicago doctor who claimed that drinking Waco's artesian water cured all kinds of intestinal diseases, eczema, rheumatism, and a couple of diseases too graphic to mention on the radio. The logical offshoot of all this powerful, potent, and nearly free water was to build elaborate bathhouses and spas, some the size of a city block. These dotted the Waco landscape. One well-known Waco businessman visited the spas of Hart Springs, Arkansas, to gather ideas for his natatorium, as they were called back then. This became the Park Natatorium, which featured two separate pools, so gentlemen and ladies could bathe separately, each flowing, the natatorium boasted at a constant 800,000 gallons a day. Amazing. The park natatorium had several fierce rivals, all of which advertised nationally for guests. The natatorial sanatorium 
was one. It may not have had the catchiest name in the world, but it featured a pool with mineral water roaring out of the mouth of a bronze lion's head, and the huge pool had a trapeze, toboggan, and springboards. It also had a bunch of spring-heated rooms and different kinds of mineral baths. And it was those same artesian wells that helped convince the U.S. Army to build Fort MacArthur Army Base here in Waco in 1917. But by the time Dorothy Scarborough left for New York City, the end was rapidly coming for Waco's artesian wells. Between the city's explosive growth and population, the arrival of Camp MacArthur, and the natatorians pumping millions of gallons a day, Waco eventually began sucking this great natural resource dry. By the 1920s, one by one, the great wells dried up. The natatoriums closed. A few wells actually lasted into the 1970s, but eventually, virtually all were gone. But it was fun while it lasted. Another nice aspect of Waco life in the decades after the start of the 20th century was that like many American cities, it was connected by electric trains that could take you just about anywhere in Texas for just a couple of bucks. Right. Okay, picture this. No Interstate 35 traffic. No bottleneck in Austin. No road rage. No $60 gas bills. You jump on one of the many trains, pay the conductor, and you're delivered to Dallas or Austin a couple hours later where a fleet of streetcars were waiting to take you to Fair Park or Neiman Marcus or the Cotton Bowl or anywhere you wanted to go. Man, that sounds heavenly right now. The electric trains were called the interurbans and began in the 1880s. These passenger trains had more than 15,500 miles of track in Texas alone. The first such interurban arrived in Waco on October 12, 1913. Dorothy Scarborough was teaching at Baylor at the time, and she doubtless joined the throngs of Wacoans who rode the shiny new trains just about everywhere. The Waco to Dallas interurban was one of the most profitable lines. Farmers and ranchers depended on the line to take their product to market. It cost $1.55 each way, which meant that you could go to baseball games or even go to the state fair and still have money left over for a corny dog and soda pop. In fact, extra cars were added for state fair weekends, especially for the Texas-Oklahoma football games. Think of it. No parking hassles. By the 1930s, the original trains had been replaced with newer models, which were bright and airy and faster. They were painted signal red with a cream accent, except for the limiteds, which only made a few stops. They were blue and cream with a red stripe. Texans called them the blue bonnets because the blue paint matched the blue of the blue bonnets, which grew in profusion along the tracks. One oral history in the Texas collection talks about the passengers singing songs, sharing picnic baskets with each other, waving at farmers. But it wasn't the last. After World War II, America's automobile and oil barons decided that cars and highways were the way to go. That was the future. Standard Oil even bought many of the train lines and promptly closed them forcing people to buy automobiles. The last dinner urban left Waco at 9 a.m. on December 31, 1948. According to a newspaper account of that sad event, it was driven by a gentleman named Sam Mathis, who, as a boy, had ridden on the first dinner urban back in 1913. On January 1st of that year, a new bus line instituted bus service to Dallas from Waco. It took about 10 minutes less to go by bus. But the streetcars had already been closed in Dallas by then. So once a rider got to the new downtown bus station, brother, he was on his own. It was the end of the line.
And that's the end of this episode of Treasures of the Texas Collection. I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism, Public Relations, and New Media at Baylor University. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Treasures of the Texas Collection. Located on the Baylor campus, the Texas Collection has one of the country's largest collections of materials related to Dorothy Scarborough, artesian wells, electric trains, as well as Texas-related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, maps, and more. For more information, go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Guy B. Harrison Jr. Endowment. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas.